so I'm probably going to date myself when I say this, but one of my favorite uh, TV shows was Lost. I know that a lot of you watched it. Some of you were too young to watch it. But man, when it was on TV, it was a thing. ABC was on fire. It was the number one show. It drew everybody in. And that first season especially was really just like a cultural moment where everybody got hooked. As a matter of fact, I, I'm not really kind of OCD about a lot of things. But when I get hooked on a TV show, I turn into a different beast. And I was so OCD about Lost that we watched the entire first season and we missed the season premiere of season two. Now, when I say miss the season premiere of season two, if you're too young to know what Lost is, then you're thinking, what do you mean? You just watch it whenever you want to watch it. No, there was actually a time when it would air, and if you missed it, you missed it. There was no rewind in the Parker house, and I missed like the first two, three minutes of the season. And because I was so OCD, I didn't want to miss anything. We did not watch season two until it came out on DVD. And every time there would be a commercial or a trailer, I would leave the room. Couldn't miss, uh, had to miss it. Couldn't be spoiled. I just couldn't handle it because Lost was so intricate. Every episode was a story within a story. And you never knew how those details from one part of the story were going to come play out in another part of the story. And to be honest, the, dis the ending of Lost, little disappointing, but I still love that idea. Stories within stories. And really, I think the reason I love that idea, and it resonates with really a lot of us so much, is because Jesus did this often. When Jesus would tell a story or when he would go someplace and perform a miracle, it was often interconnected in ways that you didn't catch the first time. But as you go back through and read it, you see that there's layers there, there's depth there, and oftentimes there's stories within the story. I think we saw that last week when we looked at the first question from Jesus, who do you say I am? And we understood the layer of the surrounding of Caesarea Philippi and how that played into that question. But today, as we look at the second question of Jesus in our series, we're going to see that this question, the question is, do you want to get well? We're going to see that this question is actually a story in a broader story. And when we understand the broader story, it helps the answer to this question make a lot more sense. So we find this question from Jesus, do you want to get well, in John's Gospel, chapter 5. So if you got your Bible, go with us to John's Gospel, chapter 5, and we're going to start reading in verse number 1. And as we kind of look at this story within a story, we're going to start by seeing the setting of the story laid out for us. So here we go. John chapter 5, verse 1 says this, After this, a Jewish festival took place, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the sheep gate in Jerusalem, there's a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic, which has five colonnades. Within these lay a large number of the disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So here's the setting for this story within a story. Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. He probably doesn't go north to Jerusalem because he's spending his time in Galilee, but because Jerusalem is the pinnacle of the nation of Israel, it's a city on a mountain. Everybody had to go up to get there. So Jesus goes up to Jerusalem to celebrate this Jewish festival. And when he goes into the city of Jerusalem, at that time, there were 12 different gates that surrounded the city so that people could come in. And one of those gates was called the Sheep Gate. It's here at the Sheep Gate that we get to see the shepherd's heart of Jesus as this story unfolds. Because at the Sheep Gate, as Jesus walks in, there's a pool that is still in the same place today, a pool called Bethesda. Now today, if you go to the Sheep Gate in the old city of Jerusalem, and you go to St. Anne's Church in the pool of Bethesda, the pool is empty. 
but it's obviously still there. The place that it existed is still there. It's a massive pool. And in Jesus' day, John tells us that this was a place that the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, the disabled would gather around this pool. And the reason that they would gather is because there was a popular myth that an angel would come and stir the waters and the first person to get into the pool after the angel stirred the waters, that person would be healed. Now, biblical archaeologists have looked at the other side of this and say, well, that was probably just a myth that the people believed in Jesus' day. That's not something that John necessarily believed. He's just explaining that that's why people were there. But in reality, this was probably a mineral spring. And there was vents in the earth that as these minerals would become released in gust and the water would stir, that people would come to this place for the medicinal properties. But it's here at Bethesda, not just the pool that we want to pay attention to, but the name Bethesda we want to pay attention to because Bethesda literally means house of grace. And it's here at the sheep gate, at the house of grace, that we're going to see the shepherd show grace to a sheep in need. And that's where the story starts to open up in verse 5. Keep reading. It says, Now one man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and realized he'd already been there a long time, he said to him, here's our question, Do you want to get well? Sir, the disabled man answered, I've no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Get up, Jesus told him. Pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man got well, picked up his mat, and started to walk. Now that day was the Sabbath. So here's kind of the first action sequence of this story within the story. Jesus comes through the sheep gate. He comes to the pool of Bethesda. He sees the lame, the blind, the paralyzed, the disabled lying around this pool waiting for the waters to move so that they could take a chance at being healed. But there's one man among all of them that stands out. It's a man who's been disabled, we know from the text, for 38 years. It's interesting that the text says for 38 years. It doesn't say from birth. Other places when a person was disabled, sometimes the author of the Gospels would mention it was from birth. But here it doesn't. It just says 38 years. So we're led to believe maybe something happened in this guy's life that led him to this place where he has now been disabled for 38 years. And he's come, probably brought by friend, maybe family, to the pool of Bethesda seeking out a healing. And Jesus identifies this man And he comes over to him and he asks him the question. The question we're looking at today, do you want to get well? Now here's where it gets interesting. Because the disabled man's response to Jesus' question, do you want to get well, shows us his poor understanding of who he was talking to and the sense of hopelessness that had invaded his soul. Right? The answer isn't, yes, of course I want to get well. Why do you think I'm here? The answer wasn't even, no, I like the way I am. I don't need any help. The answer was one of defeat. Sir, I don't have anybody to help me get in the pool. So instead of answering the question, he gives this gloomy testimony and perception of how God works where he says, well, I would be healed, but nobody will help me. And by the time I can get down there, somebody else is in first. The only hope that he thought he had is maybe someday someone would come along and help him beat everybody else into that pool. But here's the thing. Jesus was asking him, not why aren't you healed? He's asking him, do you want to be healed? 
He's asking him a simple yes or no question. That's all the guy had to answer. Do you want to be healed? Yes or no. But this man who had been here, again, John says he'd been disabled for 38 years. It said he'd been here at Bethesda for a very long time. This guy heard the question not as an invitation. He heard it as an accusation. Well, you don't think I want to get well? Do you, know, do you not know how hard it is for me to do this? It's as though he'd heard people ask him that question before. Hey, if you're at the pool, why don't you go down? Why don't you be healed? It's as if this disabled man thought that others, and maybe even believed it deep down in his own heart, that if he were only more able, if he was only faster, if he was only stronger, if he was only luckier, then maybe he could be healed. And I think you and I have all seen something similar to this at some point in our life, right? There are people who are hurting. There are people who are broken. There are people who are hopeless. And oftentimes, that hopelessness and brokenness invades their soul, and it leads them to sometimes lash out more than they intend. I think that's exactly what happens here. Instead of hearing Jesus' question as an invitation to healing, he, heals it, he hears it as an accusation of why he's not healed already. So the thing that I think you need to see is that this man had a poor understanding of God's grace and who he was talking to. Over that long period of time that he had been disabled, he had become convinced that God only operated on a first-come, first-served basis. This man probably believed what many think the Bible teaches, that God only helps those who helps themselves. Little, little did he, or a lot of people who live in the South, realize that that's not at all how God works. This is Bethesda. This is the house of grace. That's why we can't miss the good news of Jesus' response. Jesus asked this man, do you want to be healed? He doesn't get a yes or a no. He gets kind of clapped back, you know. Well, I'm not healed because nobody will help me. And I think it's at that moment that we need to realize the grace that Jesus shows. Jesus Jesus could have got that answer, and he could have walked away. He could have said, you know what, I don't need this today. Hey, if you're going to come at me with that attitude, don't come at me at all. He could have left, he could have walked away, but he didn't. Despite a clear yes, he tells the man, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. He doesn't tell him, pick up your mat and crawl. He doesn't tell him, well, I'm going to do you as best as I can, pick up your mat and limp. He tells Jesus to pick up his mat and walk. Look at the power of Jesus to instantly heal this man who'd been disabled for 38 years. Sometimes I think we forget the power of Jesus, right? We think that the best Jesus can do is to help us limp again. Jesus doesn't tell this man to get up and limp. He tells him to get up and walk. And how often are we satisfied limping around when Jesus tells us we can get up and walk? I love what Warren Wearsby, the author and commentator, says about Jesus is telling this man to get up, take his mat, and walk. Warren Wearsby says, The Lord healed him through the power of his spoken word. He commanded the man do the very thing he was unable to do, but in his command was the power of fulfillment. Think about that for just a second. Put yourself in this disabled man's shoes. He's been disabled for 38 years. Jesus says, do you want to get healed? Do you want to be made whole? Do you want to get well? And he says, well, I've got nobody to help me. 
I can't get down to the water even if I wanted. Jesus brushes it off, looks at him, and says, pick up your mat and walk. And I can imagine in that man's mind, he thinks, if only it was that simple. I'll never forget playing baseball in college. We had our, our coach w- would come when I would be pitching and, and I'd be working my tail off out there. I'd be grinding. I'm trying to pound the strike zone and I'm missing high. I'm missing outside. I'm missing low. I walk a guy. I walk two guys. I look over at the dugout and here comes coach. Coach Bates coming out of the dugout. Slow, steady walk. Got his old jacket on. Comes out to the mound. Looks at me and says, Chip, just throw strikes. <laughs> It's kind of like I want to look at him like this man looked at Jesus and said, oh, just throw strikes. I forgot that's what I was supposed to be doing. Thanks for the reminder, coach. I can't help but think maybe that was the initial thought of this man when Jesus says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. But there's a little credit we got to give to this guy because though he hasn't been able to for 38 years, he obviously tries. He obviously says, You know what? As crazy as it sounds, if he tells me, I'm going to try. And as he tries to get up and walk, he realizes he can because John says instantly he was made well. I think that's so important for us to remember. Sometimes we feel like Jesus calls us to things that that are just so far beyond us. We can never do that. We can never accomplish that. We can never overcome that sin, overcome that addiction. That marriage could never be healed. That child's never coming home. But let this story and this question remind you of one thing. What Jesus offers, Jesus can provide. If he calls you to it, He will empower you for it. This man had been disabled for 38 years. Jesus tells him, get up and walk. And he got up and he walked. No matter how you look at this miracle, it's an illustration of the grace of God, right? It was grace that brought Jesus to the pool of Bethesda. He he looked around this helpless crowd full of the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And we're not sure Jesus healed all of them. Maybe he didn't. But he singled out this one man and he healed him. The fact that Jesus came to the man, spoke to him, healed him, and later on we're going to see that he seeks him out again in the temple is proof of the mercy and the grace of Jesus. This is a story of grace. This This is a picture of grace, but it's not just a picture of grace. It's a picture of the gospel. See, here in this story, inside the story, we get a glimpse of the greatest story, and that is the story of the gospel. The preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones was once asked the question, Why did the Lord work miracles and why were they recorded? And then talking here out of the text of John chapter 5, he answered it twofold. He said, first, the miracles of Jesus were signs that powerfully revealed his identity as God. We talked about that last week. But second, the miracles were a powerful picture to illustrate the gospel. And this healing of this disabled man at the pool of Bethesda is a picture of the nature of our sin and the hope found in Christ. This disabled man disabled for 38 years, unable in his own strength to find the healing he so desperately craved, is a picture of every one of us born and broken by sin. We can't fix ourselves. We can't help ourselves. 
The Bible tells us later on in the New Testament that we are spiritually dead. It tells us in the Old Testament that we, like sheep, have all gone astray, that our best righteousness looks like filthy rags in God's eyes. Just like the disabled man, we are wholly incapable of saving ourselves. But Jesus can. This man found hope in Jesus to heal him physically. And you and I can find hope in Jesus today to heal us spiritually. This is a picture of the gospel. But as I've said, this is a story within a story. Maybe you've heard this story before and you just kind of heard it left by itself. That this was just an isolated encounter and you moved on to the next thing. But really in John's gospel, this story of the man at Bethesda is an opening to a greater story of conflict between the uh, religious leaders and Jesus specifically regarding the Sabbath. Keep reading. Go back to verse 9 and let's look at the bigger story at play here. We read, instantly, the man got well, picked up his mat, and started to walk. New sentence, now that day was the Sabbath. I heard a pastor say one time that if John's, uh, if John's gospel was accompanied by a soundtrack, when it said, now that day was the Sabbath, it would say, bum, 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 because this is a big deal. In Jesus' day, the keeping of the Sabbath is a huge deal. If you go to Israel today and Orthodox Jews, the keeping of the Sabbath is a huge deal. They say that the Sabbath is a day set aside to uh, honor God. We completely agree with that. And it's to be a day that is free from work. Now, what that means is open for interpretation. The people in Jesus' day, the religious leaders, took that to a far extreme. There is, in Jewish writings on the Sabbath, a special section devoted to a toothache. It says that if you were to have a toothache, you were not allowed on the Sabbath to dip your finger in vinegar and rub it on your tooth, for that would be work. But, get this, if you mixed vinegar in with the meal which you were already going to eat, and healing came, then healing came. They took the Sabbath very seriously. Still today, the Sabbath is taken very seriously. If you go to Israel right now, there are elevators that have buttons you don't push on the Sabbath. It just stops at every floor because there are some Jews who still believe pushing a button on an elevator is work and work is forbidden on the Sabbath. So this big deal of the Sabbath looms over John's gospel. When he says that Jesus healed this man and it was on the Sabbath, bum, 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 we have an issue. Keep reading. It says, Now that day was the Sabbath, and so the Jews, that term the Jews is probably best associated with the religious leaders of Judaism. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, This is the Sabbath. The law prohibits you from picking up your mat. That's too much work. He replied, The man who made me well told me pick up your mat and walk. Who is this man who told you pick up your mat and walk, they asked. But the man who was healed didn't know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. And after this, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you're well. Don't sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. The man went 
and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So, this is the broader story, right? The man is healed. He is made well. He is restored. He picks up his mat and walks away. And immediately, the religious, the religious leaders say, Nope, nope, you can't do that. <laughs> religious people don't change a whole lot, do they? <laughs> no, no, you can't do that. That's not the way it works. That's the Sabbath. You can't carry your mat. Carrying the mat's a violation of the Sabbath. So this confused man, no doubt, had been caught breaking the rules of the religious leaders. They'd been caught breaking the rules of the Sabbath. And to be clear, these were the rules of the leaders, not the teaching of the law. And the rabbis confronted him, and this man wasn't sure what to say, so his quick defense was, well, the guy who healed me, the guy who healed me told me to pick up my mat and to walk away. And they said, who healed you? The guy says, I, I don't know. He slipped away into the crowd. I can only imagine he slipped away into the crowd. Can you imagine how many people started crowding around Jesus after they saw him heal this other man? But later on, this guy's in the temple. And Jesus seeks him out in the temple and says, Hey, I see that you're well. I see that you're still walking. Say, don't sin so that something worse doesn't happen. I personally believe that Jesus is referencing the judgment for sin in the last day, not that he would become disabled again. I think Jesus is saying, hey, I healed you physically, but you better pay attention to your spiritual life as well, or else judgment is coming there. And it says then in John's gospel, from this point on, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So from this point on, the religious leaders are at odds with Jesus, and they're going to seek his death. The reason why is very clear. In their minds, according to their traditions, Jesus was breaking the Sabbath. And so I, don't, I want you to see something here. I want you to see how the story within the story kind of connects and gives greater meaning. You see, the disabled man had been made well. He was helpless. He was unable to heal himself until Jesus showed up and made him whole. Carrying his mat after he had been healed is no work for this man. It wasn't work. It was joy. It wasn't work. It was obedience. It wasn't work. It was worship. But the religious leaders couldn't see that. All they could see is, oh, you can't work. That's not how you do it on the Sabbath. See, the religious leaders still had not realized that they were in the same spiritual condition as the disabled man had been in physically. And in their rest, quote-unquote, their attempt to rest, they were so busy working, trying to be made whole and right before God. Like, do you see how much effort they're putting into keeping the Sabbath and they've forgotten that the whole point of it was a day of rest and a day to set aside and honor God? So here's this man who in the work of carrying his mat was at rest in the healing he found in Jesus and these guys of religion were so at work in their rest that they were wearing themselves out. They thought that they could rest enough. They thought they could keep the law enough. And because they were so focused on that, they wound up missing their only real chance to be made whole, to truly be made well. Jesus himself. If you were to look at the end of John chapter 5, 
you would see that it's a continuous conversation that Jesus is having with these religious leaders who are now persecuting him. And man, he gets to a point there, John chapter 5, verse 39, when he says, You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me, but you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. Jesus says, guys, you're taking the Old Testament law and you're pulling it apart piece by piece, and then you're adding layer and layer and layer and law and law and rule and rule on top of it, and you're missing the point. You're not willing to come to me and to live. So I want you to see how these stories connect. The man who was healed had come to his own insufficiency, his inability to heal himself, and in that he found rest and healing in Jesus. But the religious leaders were so focused on working for their rest that they couldn't find it and would not come to Jesus. So don't let the significance of this story pass you by. Don't don't miss it. See, each of us, you and I, we have sat by our own pools in hopes of healing. Paralyzed by our sin. Paralyzed by our brokenness. Paralyzed by our self-pity. We see this thing in our life. We think that if I can just get there, it'll heal me. Each of us has fooled ourselves into thinking that if we just do it right this time, maybe we can fix ourselves. If I just try a little bit harder, work a little bit harder, keep the Sabbath a little bit better, then I'll be made right. Each of us is just like the paralyzed man. Each of us are just like the religious leaders. We are totally incapable of healing ourselves, and either we fall into pity seeing it or we work ourselves to death trying to prove it wrong when the truth for both is that we need Jesus. We have each looked to that which cannot save. And yet our gracious Lord has drawn near through his death, through his resurrection. And even now he asks, but do you want to be healed? Man, that's grace, right? Do we want to be healed because we can't do it in ourselves? You can't do it by your uh, just brokenness. You're not so broke that you can't be healed. And you're not, you're not going to be able to work hard enough to be healed. It only comes from Jesus. He's the one who gives the invitation. And the deeper question that Jesus asks is, not just do you want to be healed, but do you really want to be changed? Here's the hard truth. If we are content to stay where we are, no matter how miserable we may be there, if we're content, there's going to be no change, no possibility of healing. There are people who are miserable in their brokenness, but they're unwilling to leave it. And there are people who are miserable in their self-righteousness that's killing them, but they're unwilling to leave it. The truth is, it can be far easier than we realize for us to get complacent in our brokenness and comfortable in our sin. We get comfortable and we really don't want to change. But yet deep down in our hearts, I bet even right now, you know that we must change. You've got to change. 
You can't stay wallowing in your brokenness and you can't keep clinging to your self-righteousness. We must change. But how we change, or more specifically, how we are changed, matters eternally. So I want to leave you with this thought. Forgiveness doesn't come through change. Change comes through forgiveness. See, I think so often we feel like the religious leaders or the disabled man that if we could just change, then we might find the healing and the forgiveness that we were longing for. If we can change, then we can be forgiven. How many times have you ever told yourself, man, I need to get my life right and get in church. I need to change so I can be forgiven. Listen, that's backwards. Forgiveness doesn't come through change. Change comes through forgiveness. It's once we realize our insufficiency, it's once we find the sufficiency in Jesus that we are forgiven and then we begin to change. Don't miss that. Do you want to be well? That's the question Jesus asked this man. It's the question he asked us still. Are you ready to be changed from your brokenness? Are you ready to be changed from your self-righteousness? Are you ready to push in to the forgiveness that Jesus freely offers so that you can be changed? If you are, we'd love to talk to you. There's somebody who's waiting right now to chat with you, either in the chat or in the private discussion. We would love to talk with you. But for me right now, I just want to take a minute and I want to pray for you. I want to pray that you would find forgiveness in Christ and that would lead you to the change that you're searching for. Let me pray for you. God, I just pray for those who are watching that feel the need to change, but yet they think that until they do, they'll never find forgiveness. So God, I pray today that they would realize the insufficiency of their brokenness, the insufficiency in their self-righteousness, and they would see hope only in you. And as they see hope in you, they would cry out and say, Jesus, heal me. Jesus, save me. Jesus, do for me what I can't do for myself. And that they would find forgiveness. And from that forgiveness would flow new life, transformation, and change. God, I pray today that you would bring new hearts to life. In Jesus' name, amen.